I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I create today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I think I'm still dealing with that. Okay. I think I'll always deal with that in a way because I'm growing as a person and what I you know, value in myself and what I'm comfortable with in myself as well Um, Mm. because there was a big part of me that was... I had to shut down. I, okay. I had to kind of remove any way of myself being seen as a sexual being in this space. Mm. I had to be one of the guys in order to fit in and survive. Wow. While at the same time navigating having, you know, a, a boss that wanted me to be overtly sexualized so that I would attract men to the publication... And I was grossly uncomfortable with that, but do I want to lose my job? Can't lose my job. Can't lose my job. Got a child to support. So you you do what you have to to get through, which is awful looking back. And I would like to think that I had a choice, but I didn't. If I didn't take that job, that was it. There were no other jobs. No one else was going to give me a chance. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. So this week's episode aired two years ago in May 2019, and it's with a woman I look up to and learn from, and her name is Ray Johnston. Ray has an exceptional story, and... If you haven't heard this episode, or maybe you have and you're going to listen again, thank you. I'm really honoured to share it with you and to introduce you to Ray. A proud mum, Wiradjuri woman, award-winning STEM journalist and podcast host. On that, you can hear her voice on Queens of the Drone Age, Take It Black and Here and Beyond. Ray, in my eyes, is Australia's real-life Wonder Woman. And... While that's a pretty fitting reference, I also mean it literally. She has a long career in the cosplay industry, playing this very character. When I think about it, Wonder Woman's compassionate, she's strong, and she has an incredible sense of justice. That's Ray. Now, if you didn't already know, this week is National Reconciliation Week. As defined by Reconciliation Australia, It's a time for all Australians to recognise the traditional owners of our land by learning about our shared histories and the unique place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture within this country 
we can explore how we can contribute to achieving reconciliation in Australia. National Reconciliation Week is celebrated every year on the same dates, the 27th of May until the 3rd of June. The dates commemorate two very significant milestones, the anniversaries of the successful 1967 referendum and also the Mabo decision. Every year, Reconciliation Australia sets a theme. And this year's theme is more than a word. Reconciliation takes action. Action. It's a word I've used a lot in the last 12 months. And just as I am, I invite you to reflect on just how much action you've actually taken. Could you do more? I've learned that one of the most impactful ways white people can act in allyship to black indigenous people of color is to amplify their voices and their stories. I'm committed to continuing to do that here on Offline. I hope you enjoy this episode and that you learn from Ray and her story and her experiences. It's truly one of my most cherished, honest conversations. So I hope you love it. Here's Ray Johnston and I for Offline. I'm actually so excited to talk to you. First, because I love your voice. (laughs) I've always loved your voice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I think second, just because we've worked together for so long and being here together in in these circumstances is quite heartwarming. Yeah, I think it's really lovely to be able, like, for this to be our catch-up. Yes. I think it's quite lovely. We had a lot that we just spoke about that's not on record. <laughs> so we'll keep that to ourselves. Um, but yeah, so I guess we'll start with, um, you know, I know your professional story, which we are going to talk about. Um, but I thought we could start with your personal story because I don't actually know that much about Ray before we met in what was that, two thousand and. 13 or 14? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, about around 2013, about then. 2013, yeah. um, So if we start at the beginning. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> rewind. Um, okay, where did you grow up? Because I don't know that. And then I like this question around like who was Little Ray? Oh. Yeah. So like what was your upbringing like? But also like who were, were you as a young girl? So I grew up in a place called Wurrumbi which no one has ever heard of. And when I try to describe it to people what it was like, it was a very small, very rural town. No tar on the roads. They were all dirt roads, no gutters, no streetlights. The closest kind of council building, I suppose you could say, was like the rural bushfire brigade shed. Wow. Uh, There was a very long bus trip to school. I went to Camden High School. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is in Sydney Southwest. I'm a Camden gal. Yeah, yeah. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was actually in the last year 12 to be in Camden High School before we had to move the entire school because it was built on toxic waste. Yes, which gosh, is it's sad. just incredible to think about. Um, but I grew up very simply. I had I, little, little Ray had a very simple life. Uh, mm. We lived in a shed for the first 11 years of my life. Wow. We had a generator for power for a lot of that time. Uh, we had a, an outdoor toilet that I couldn't understand why my primary school friends were hesitant to use. 
Uh, and because they're like the spiders. Yeah, the spiders <laughs> and the outside and the cold yeah. and yeah. the distance that you'd have to travel to get to it with a torch in the dark. <laughs> and all the wildlife because I yes. grew up on property. I grew up in the bush. And I think still part of me because of that is is still quite simple. Mm. Um, I think that I've I've kept a lot of that with me. I think it's pretty fair to say that my family struggled for a really long time mm. and that struggle continued with me in my life mm. growing up. Uh, that being said, I was quite deep as a kid. Were you? Yeah, I was always quite spiritual. I think I was always looking for something to to have, you know, a connection to, a, a kind of deeper meaning with and... You know, weirdly, I was one of those kids that, you know, you ask me as an eight-year-old, you know, what, what the meaning of life is. And I remember telling someone and just the way they looked at me was like, this is not a normal child, <laughs> was to have as many experiences as you possibly can so that you can help as many people as you possibly can. Right, that's profound. Yeah, and that stayed with me. And I, and I think that's really kind of led... It kind of comes through you, hey? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think I was born with that mm. and I don't think it's going anywhere. Do you have, um, I guess that makes me think about you as an old soul. Yeah. Do you have that connection? Do you have a belief in soul and spirit versus body as a vessel and yeah. personality? I do and this is something that I've kind of wrestled with internally because I'm a lover of science. Yes. So marrying you know, science and spirit, spirituality is, is something that seems – to be at complete odds with each other. You know, they, they don't make sense together. Uh, but somehow in me, they do make sense. And, and for me, it's, you know, I am guided by my ancestors. I am guided by, you know, my mother, who is still with us, mm. uh, not much older than me, to be honest, uh, but also by my grandmother and her sisters and her grandmother. And I genuinely feel that mm. on a daily basis, that, you know, I am the continuation of my family. That is so and that that's an important thing to carry and keep. So with the me. line of women in your life yeah. is it's very strong. Yeah, absolutely, mm. definitely, very strong women, very strong, very opinionated, very resilient, determined, independent women. Mm. It's interesting you use the word struggle mm. for your family because I've spoken a bit about my upbringing. And, you know, I've done interviews myself where I've used the word disadvantaged. Yeah. And then I really am disappointed in myself for using that word because we weren't disadvantaged. You know, my parents were doing the very best that they could with what they had. And, and so was it challenging? Yes. But was I at a disadvantage? I don't know because I kind of look at myself now. I'm like, well, without all of that, there's none of this. Yeah. So that was an advantage, actually. That, absolutely that. Mm. You know, if I wasn't the person that I was you know, as a child, as a teenager, as a you know, young teenage single mom, mm. I would absolutely not be the person that I am today. And I wouldn't have the perspective that I have. Mm. And I don't think I'd have the same level of empathy and humanity that I have now today either. I, I think that, you know, obviously, in my job, but also in my personal life, I... I like to be able to connect to and relate to people. Mm. So having some shared life experiences or, or knowing what it feels like to go through certain things, 
it, it adds so much to who you are. Mm. It's interesting, um, you know, we go in and out of, I guess, stages of wealth and prosperity in our lives and having come from times when things were really tight financially, Mm. it's interesting now that I would say I've come out of an earning period into a non-earning period. (laughs) That's okay. It doesn't feel that alarming to me. No. Because I've been here before. Yep. And and I was just fine. Do you find as well, because I I have this too, that there's sort of a sense of pride that comes with knowing that if the worst happens, you know what to do. Yes. You've you've been there. You can survive on what other people would look at and just give up. Oh yeah. But but we know how to do it. Oh my gosh. And, I, and yeah. we all, it's almost like a challenge to me, yeah. like because even in my adult life. I've had ups and downs you know, financially. I've you know, struggled. Even in my 30s, I struggled. Mm. But I knew what to do and I was really happy about that. And mm. I looked at it and just kind of did the roll up the sleeves thing yeah. and went, nope, this is fine. We do a big batch cook on a Sunday yeah. night and, you know, lunch for the week goes in these containers in the freezer. <laughs> and like yeah. you've got all these fallbacks that you have built into you. And I think also being able to calm and help the people around you in those circumstances is really lovely Mm. as well. They might not have experienced this. They don't know what to do. But you're like, nope, it's fine. I've got this. I can take control. It's totally fine. (laughs) It's going to be okay. So I didn't know that um, your mum wasn't that much older than you. So you have a young young (laughs) mum. I do. My mum was 19 when she had me. Wow. And how old were you when you had Seth? I was 18. Okay. Let's talk about that. correlation yeah how how do we think about that like I'd love to hear the story because that's another thing I don't know about you is I know he's in your life and how old is he now uh he'll be turning 18 in August (laughs) wow yeah so (laughs) so so my boy's nearly the same age that I was when you had him when I because I thought that's what's like so beautiful is Today as this, I mean, by traditional definition and every other definition, this successful woman yeah. has a, you were a teenager who now has a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. It is. And it he's is a beautiful incredible. boy. He is. He's lovely. Mm. And I think one of the things I love about him the most is that he completely changed the course of my life. Yeah. I, I credit so much to him. He took me out of a cycle that I was about to enter that was pretty common for, you know, girls my age in the area that I grew up with that found themselves being young mums. And that cycle wasn't, you know, not bad. Like, you know, it's it's life and Mm. it's, it's what happens. But I didn't want to give up on what I wanted to achieve but I was told at every point when I'd made the decision to have a child as a teenager that this was it my life was over Mm. you're just a mum now (laughs) which you know is amazing in itself like being a mum is incredible but Mm. you're just a mum now any plans any hopes any dreams that you had are on hold that's it you you're not achieving them you live vicariously through this human you've created Mm. and I've told this story a couple of times 
Um, but I like to tell people that there was a moment because there really was a very defining moment in my life when he was very young, about three months old, and I was sitting in the rocking chair that we had and I was feeding him. And I realised that I was going to tell him when he got old enough that he could be anything he wants to be. Mm. You know, you've got your child coming to you saying, you know, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a scientist, I want to be prime minister. And I was going to say, yes, Mm. son, you go for it, you can achieve. But how was he ever meant to believe that if he didn't have a role model for that or if he saw me give up Mm. at the first instance that I was told that I couldn't do something? And I was a bright kid but I wasn't a good student. This is my story too. I was Sorry, I'm getting really emotional. No, it's fine. I was more concerned with fitting in and making friends and yeah we we had a bit of a traumatic you know few years in high school where we had quite a few friends pass away and was that what was that was that related to the school or no 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 no, that all came later um but that's you know I had a friend die in a motorbike accident I had a friend pass away from a a gas leak accident in his shed that he lived in I had you know more friends pass away in in car accidents and it was just this constant trauma that our entire school was going through constantly so the idea of just not being there as a support group for friends and I don't know. I don't it's know, kind like, of like the like the schooling didn't wasn't the priority. Class wasn't was priority not, when right? people are mourning. Exactly. Yes. And and mourning so constantly. Wow. So it just threw me completely off kilter with any kind of study that I wanted to do. And my whole thing was just being a good friend for mm. people and and but also wanting to fit in. That was yes. a, that was a big thing for me. I wanted to be cool so desperately. <sighs> That uh, I, I tried anything, mm. anything and everything I could to be cool, mm. I, I wanted to do. Um, so as a consequence of, you know, a lot of these things, I barely got through year 12. Wow. And I never went to uni. Mm. It, it just wasn't a thing. Uh, you know, going to uni wasn't something that was even on my radar. It wasn't something that was floated as an, as an option. And I have to say, like, I mean, growing up, you know, and going to school near where you did um, – Going to uni wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't important normal. to a lot of people. I was the first in my family, and my you know sisters have gone on to yeah. complete degrees as well, and so it was a kind of a big deal that I ha- had ambition to go. Yeah. But like you, I just flunked the thing, and then I end up going mature age. But sometimes I even wonder whether that was necessary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's when I made the decision that I was going to do what I wanted to do because growing up I was always wanting to be an actor. That well, was I was going to ask about <laughs> Ray the performer. Yeah. Because it's in you. It's obviously innate. Like it's, yeah. you must have always had that, you know, yeah. desire to perform. Yeah. Yes. I think, I know it sounds a little bit wanky, but part of it is the artistry of yeah. it. That doesn't sound wanky at all. I, I, I don't think anything you could sound, say <laughs> could sound wanky to me. <laughs> It's just very artistic. Yeah. Um, I, I love being able to elicit a response from an audience, mm. being able to decide that I'm going to bring these people into a room and make them feel something. Mm. And what I'm going to make them feel is you know, something of my creation. And that's translated 
across all of the work that I do, yes. you know, whether it's public speaking or writing or, you know, presenting or any of those sorts of things. Uh, but the main reason that I was kind of the theatre kid in, in school was I had a great memory and I loved to read. I read everything that came across my path absolutely everything junk mail that hit the letterbox at my nan's because we didn't get it where we were I would read it I know. saw you put up those gorgeous <laughs> pictures of you as moody teenage Ray yes. and you were reading like a big w catalog yeah, or something <laughs> because it was there it was reading material yeah anything I could get my hands on I read uh so I would memorize you know big chunks of you know novels scripts for plays I'd memorize poems I'd memorize all sorts of things so when it came time to casting the end of school play you go for the one that can reliably be comfortable standing up on stage has no issue with it whatsoever Mm. wants to make the audience feel something because it's built into it and can remember all their lives so you're like ding 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 I'm your gal I was like hey here I am (laughs) I'm here but I remember in kindergarten I was cast as a tree no lines. That was me. I was those roles. Yeah, I, I was. I was the waving the the hands in my air in the, in the air, uh, you know, with the with the brown tracksuit pants as the trunk and the green skivvy uh, and the yes. face paint. Yes. And I remember being like, I was four or five years old, and I was frustrated that I wasn't. This is ridiculous. I was frustrated that I wasn't achieving my full potential in this school play. As a four-year-old. <laughs> You're like, what about if the tree talks? <laughs> I'm like, look, you know. <laughs> but I, I remember I used to have dreams of, like, literal dreams while I was asleep of breaking out of, you know, the, the background of this play and just stepping into the, into the spotlight. Wow. Yeah. So weird. So it's just always been there. And then after you had – so you finished school mm. – Finished school. Had Seth. Had my son, yes. Then? And then I was on my own for a while. And when he started uh, going to preschool a few more days a week, uh, I enrolled at TAFE. So in the meantime was still – I was doing cash in hand, work waitressing when I could. I was doing absolutely everything I could. I was on a single parent pension at this point in time, uh, which if memory serves me correctly was $610 a fortnight. And this is the thing is we remember the exact dollar amount because the rationing. Mm -hmm. It's written down every fortnight. My rent was $210 a week. Mm. So after the $420 was taken from the 610, I had to put enough petrol in my car to get to the grocery store because it was a fair way away because I lived rurally. Mm. Uh, I had to pay for my landline because it was needed for emergencies and there was no mobile phone reception where I lived. I needed to pay for power and yeah, my, my groceries. And then I think I would have $5 left over at the end that I would put away for, if I needed something like Panadol for, for Seth, if he had a fever or something. Uh, and if it had been a couple of weeks and I didn't need anything from that emergency fund or a couple of months rather, cause this is fortnightly, $2.50 a fortnight left over after your budget. How, how did I do these things? I'd go to Vinny's 
and I would splurge on like a retro 70s tablecloth for a dollar. Mm, your heaven. Or get myself like a treat, you know, a, a, a hand knitted jumper that was on sale mm. for 50 cents. I, I think I'm incredibly lucky as well that you know, Seth never went without. Like mm. I paid for everything. I was incredibly proud, would not take money from anyone in my family. I'm like, no, this is a decision I've made. I'm following this through. I'm looking after myself. I'm looking after my son. Mm. But mum would come around with, you know, clothes, toys, everything that Seth would ever need really. So mm. I was lucky that I had that support. And she'd also do this thing <laughs> where she'd come around with like a fruit and veggie box She'd be like, oh, one of those roadside stalls. It was so cheap. Like all of this was only $5. Like, and looking back, of course it was $50 worth of food. But she knew that I wouldn't accept it otherwise. Mm. I'd just, I'd make do with what I could and I'd see it as a challenge that I was proud of completing. Mm. But when Seth started going to daycare, to preschool, a few more days a week, I enrolled in TAFE and I was living at Wollongong then. Okay. And I would travel because I've moved around a fair bit. You have. So that was, I was at the Oaks when he was really little and then yep. I went to Wollongong uh, and I got on the train at six o'clock every morning. I'd drop Seth off at, at his preschool and I'd get on the train and I would travel to Redfern and I went to the Aura College of Indigenous and Performing Arts. Wow. And I studied theatre performance and practices, certificate three, uh, and because I had decided that this is something I was going to do, I was going to excel at. And I think because I had been through what I'd been through with needing to be really determined and I, I really needed to be disciplined mm. in the way that I was living my life. I couldn't just go splurge on something and go, oops, I can't make rent. I'd get kicked out. Yes. What would, what would I do? Where would I live? So I, I learned that discipline mm. and I was able to apply that to study for the first time. And probably ever. really enjoy it. I loved yes. it. And I was surrounded by the most amazing people. Because when it's on our own terms, yeah. it's a very different yeah. feeling, isn't it? It yeah. totally is. Um, and I, it was a real challenge for me that I just took on. And mm. I'm still really proud to look back and say I learned a lot and I made lifelong friends there that have gone on to do incredible things as well. Uh, And I ended up coming first in the state. Right. I'm not surprised, actually. But this is from someone that barely got through year 12, not because they weren't smart, Mm. but because they didn't commit themselves to it. They just didn't apply themselves at all. Because there were people in need. Yeah. You know, and that's what's so fascinating Including myself. Yeah. 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 I've been trying to, and I know you do a lot of public speaking and panels mm. and anytime I'm in front of people, I'm trying to say like, particularly young women, where you are today is not your whole story. And, you know, take it from you, take it from me. You can flunk that fucking HSE and nothing's going to happen. Can but there's no, there's, it doesn't feel to me that there's any support framework at that age because it feels like it's all or nothing yeah and it's really really difficult to take that lesson even from my life and apply that advice to my own son that's interesting who is in year 12 right now how's he doing (laughs) (laughs) look no comment (laughs) that's fine I Mm. think I think it's fair for me to say it's difficult to watch 
someone make the same kinds of mistakes that Mm. you made and allow them to make it and learn from them themselves. Mm. He goes through periods of applying himself and not applying himself, Mm. but it's really, really difficult not to just grab him by the shoulders and say, you have no idea how much easier your life is going to be if you just get through this Mm. and just try your hardest and do your best right now. You're going to knock 10 years of struggling off your life. But that's his lesson to learn. Totally. And I can't force so that on hard. him. I can't force that on him. And who knows what they want to do when they're 17. We just don't know. We I don't mean, know. Like for you, say, performance, um, you know, capturing a room, making people feel something, telling stories, yeah. whether that's visually, orally written, For me, same thing, knowing that I was always going to be a storyteller in some capacity. Um, Lent into journalism, I feel like, quite young. Yeah. So maybe maybe I'm a bit different in that sense, but most people don't know. I mean, or you go into, as a woman particularly, go into nursing, you be a teacher, go into those really care-based roles, exactly, service-based roles, but... Gosh, when I think about me at 18, shit show. No idea. Terrible. And if I could say to 18-year-old Alison now, like you're really not going to feel like you've rem- like remotely got this together until nearly 34. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and even <laughs> oh then, God. the rules of life change. Yeah. And you know, situations where you thought everything was set out in stone and safe like it's ripped out from under you and what do you do Mm. so I I think because I've had so many experiences where I don't know what's around the corner I have just kind of had to diversify everything that I do within that storytelling realm Mm. because my my real goal people are like what's your goal like career-wise what do you what what is your goal there and I'm like it's to be as employable as possible for as long as possible and that's like practical I'm so future rooted in practicality and future proofing and providing security for my family Mm. and having that security Mm. that I've never really ventured outside of that that's really interesting there's somebody very close to me that had a child young and you know I'll never forget he told me that the shape of his ambition was different yeah because it was always about earning to support and knowing that no matter how many promotions he got it would always be a percentage of that money would of course go to child support so whereas like say for me the ambition was ego driven yeah it's really different, yeah. like, the shape of it, you yeah. know? Like, for you, it was like, I'm needing to provide. Yeah. There's mm. also an element of ego in it as well. Mm. I think, yeah, it's it's difficult to say that you're a, a storyteller and, or a performer without ego being a part of that. You want to be the one bringing those stories to people. Mm. You, you do enjoy that attention. And I think that we look at attention in a negative light. Yes. But we can make that such a positive thing Mm. as well. I I love having attention from people I admire. Yeah. From people who will see what I'm doing and, you know, might be inspired by some of it. From people who haven't seen people like me or heard people like my stories be told before. Yeah. And I also love that in my work I'm able to 
develop and change the platforms I'm working for to be able to allow for other people's voices to come on board. Mm. And I think that's the point where I'm at at the moment that I'm really, really loving Mm. is being able to say, look, I've got this platform. If you've got a story to tell, come to me and I'll help you craft it Mm. and we'll get it out into the world because they need to be told by you, not by me. Yes. And there's still ego in that, Mm. but it's not it's not so selfish. Well, it's definitely value-driven, I would yeah. say, or purpose. Yeah. It's, um, it's a level of awareness yeah. that, you know, and you and I could talk to Web Blue in the face about how challenged media is, not in this market only, but every market. And I think the attention thing's interesting to hear you say that because um, journalists like you having attention is the best thing that can happen. Exactly. (laughs) And so I so hear that if we could have thousands more of you (laughs) with platforms that are saying very additive things and bringing diverse voices into mainstream media, like that would be incredible because we just haven't been there, have we? I mean like a big part of my story in moving on from Allure even is – did I actually believe what I was believe in what I was doing anymore? And was the work um, additive? Yeah, you know, because I can't stand up in front of that team. I can't sit on those panels and be turning up to a job every day and writing stories about ten ways to wear a white shirt. <laughs> can't do it. They were good stories though. They were good stories. <laughs> they, I mean, and they did well, you know. We know how to bring an audience in. But, you know, any time that I really wanted to lean into something that had substance, it's like, well, that doesn't sell. Yeah, yeah. I oh, think yeah, yeah, there yeah, was yeah. a whole thing that I had to do for a little while there, which was, I called it one for them, one for you. Nice. Where I put out a quick story that I knew would get traffic Something Game of Thrones, something NBN. <laughs> winter is coming. And, you know, <laughs> winter is coming and so is your NBN. <laughs> There's and, the headline. And then I'd be able to publish an incredible interview with, you know, a woman who's you know, starting a, a mentorship program for underrepresented people in STEM yeah. that I knew maybe 100 people would read. Mm. That's I, I think I'll never forget how soul-crushing it was for me. I went out on a trip with Google to Uluru and there was I remember this. a moment yeah. there where I realised that this was a heavily orchestrated trip and we weren't getting the whole story mm. and that we were being quite kept from, you know, the local Indigenous people there and their perspective on Google mapping Uluru in street view and showing it to the world and it's a it's a big story and there's a Mm. there's a lot to it but essentially it came down to there was a complete lack of consultation where it mattered Mm. and a lot of people who were very important in that area were not really aware in Mm -hmm. the community and I wrote about this and I was the only journalist that went on that trip that wrote about this. Every other piece that came out was a straight news piece, which is perfectly fine. Mm. They they have their place. I sat on this piece for a month, made sure that I had it right, made sure that I had all my translations right from the language there as well and put it out into the world and went, this is the most important thing I've ever written for a tech site, like to be able to have this critical analysis of the impact of these multinational companies, these big, like Google is 
the world, basically. Mm. What kind of impact is that having on the people in the world? And no one read it. Mm. It got 140 hits. And I cried because I thought no one's ever going to care. No one's ever going to care about the things that I really care about, about the stories that I really want to tell that need to be told, Mm. that no one's telling. And that's when people are saying, oh, why aren't you writing about this issue? Why aren't you writing about this issue? It's like, no one's reading it. Yes. But I have to keep doing it. You do. Because, you know, it's, it's our slow and deliberate work. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And we've just got to hold out hope, right. don't we? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> hold out hope for the world that they that they start to come around. And I am seeing it happening slowly. Mm. Uh, people are starting to come around to issues, and you know, sometimes it's a matter of you're just way too early. You're, yeah. you're too behind the times. You're too behind whatever social movements coming up behind you. Mm. You know, you're you're too early to catch that wave of of whatever trend is occurring mm. that people are rallying behind. Yeah, uh, but it's the kind of work that you need for your soul, and you need for your conscience, and you need when you are in a position a position of privilege where you have a voice where mm. many people can access what you have to say. Yes. So what are you going to say? You you need to mm. – I, I place a lot of importance on what I say and how I say it and who I'm representing when I say that mm. uh, and what kind of impact those words will have on the lives of people who read it. Me too. It's a lot of weight to carry. And I tell you, that's like <laughs> been the biggest um, joy – and stress <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of offline yeah. is, you know, I knew what I was doing as much as I want to minimise that and I have a little joke about it. It's not strategic. Um, of course you knew what you were doing. I knew what I was doing. Yeah. I just didn't admit it to myself at the time that I, you know, I don't think as creatives we ever put work out there and expect it to do well (laughs) I don't know that might just be me I've always readied myself (laughs) in case you know it didn't and I certainly did that with this and and now you know this isn't just a podcast it's so much more than that and there's days where that feels like pure like elation and there's days where I don't want to get out from under the covers because I'm like you're doing this and it's important you know, but it's a lot to carry some days, but then I'm like, bored on myself. So it's like, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cycle. <laughs> yeah. But so close to my heart, you know. Yeah. Um, honestly, like, talking to you is a big highlight for me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And if I can say, there's particular guests that I've wanted to be ready for. Okay. And you're oh, wow. one of them. Yeah. Oh, see, it's so funny because when you approached me, I was like, oh, gosh, am I good enough for this? Ray Johnson, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not – I don't have a million Instagram followers. I'm not a, I'm not a fancy fashion lady. But you're influential. <laughs> like, you've got all these fancy fashion ladies. You know, my like, girlfriend Zoe was All my boots are from Vinnie's. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of it. Yeah. And, like, that's kind of what I'm trying to champion is influence doesn't look like what we necessarily label it as. Yeah. You know, but I mean it when I say I wanted 
to be sure, and I'm not completely sure I am, but <laughs> but I wanted to be sure enough that I could help hold your stories. Yeah. And I couldn't have done that early on. Wow. So it is a big highlight. Thank you. And you're my first interview in, in the new offline space. So I'm that's so excited to be in this space. It's so beautiful. Once we get some furniture, we'll be... <laughs> Well, it's just minimalist at the yeah. moment, isn't that a thing? It's chic. I'm becoming an, an, an unintentional minimalist because my puppy's just eating everything I own. So, so you're like, right. And then I look at Eat it. Eat me out of house and home. <laughs> it's this weird like intention thing where I look at the destroyed object and I'm like, do I need to replace this? No. I can let it go. It's What's like the, the universe whole, trying to tell me? <laughs> the whole Marie Kondo thing with like destroyed items in my mm. home. I was actually on the Vinnie's thing, um, I was going to say before, and I didn't. Um, is it quite a beautiful thing for you to be an ambassador for Vinnie's now, having had that be a massive part of your um, livelihood, I yeah. guess? Is that the right word? Like that it was something you relied on that service? Yeah, absolutely. When you were young? Like um, how it gorgeous. Was it was really awesome when they approached me and they were like, look, we'd, we'd love to do some work with you. And like, I don't get paid for anything that I do with Vinny's. I don't want of course, their money. Yeah. Like I just get to do cool photo shoots and, mm. and you know, it's, it's really, really fun. And mm. you know, it's so full amazing circle. fundraising hikes and it's absolutely full circle. And I think it's pretty rare for me to find a charity organization that I can throw my all into because I a thousand percent believe in what they're doing. Mm. I, I think there's a lot of charities charity organisations I'm hesitant to, you know, put my name behind or endorse because I don't know what they're going to be like down the track. Yeah, I don't know I'm what skeletons this. they've got in their closet. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they stand on issues that I'm passionate about, whether their values represent mine. But I think Vinnie's was just a really natural fit. I think that even just those Vinnie's stores that I would visit, mm. you know, when I was young and Seth was tiny and that, that just continued throughout my life. Mm. And now I do it as a way to unwind. I know that's I love really it. Bizarre. No, I'm with you. That's yeah. my favourite thing to do. Like I will pop my headphones in. I'll pop on a, a podcast or some music or something and I'll just go through all the racks and feel for like the nice fabrics. Find and the gems. Yeah. It's, it's I, that I, hunting gather. I love it. I think it's great. And it's also forced me to be a bit more experimental in my fashion style as well because mm. I'd never worked with a stylist or anything before and then Vinny's were like, we're going to dress you and we're going to like teach you how to do things. I'm like, this is amazing. Amazing. Because I'm a very process rule you know schedule orientated kind of person and that tends to bleed into everything I do in my life yeah. so you probably remember this I just used to wear black and white yeah every day yeah. I wear variations of black and white in yeah. everything I did and then I went and did this first finish shoot and they put me in all this color and I went oh can, oh I, can I do this can I can I keep this can mm. I continue this in my daily life and mm. I don't know it just makes things a little bit more fun I agree and there's something about um I'm trying to wear more color yeah. it um has this thing where it's like you feel like you're taking up a bit more space in it mm. do you have that yeah whereas we tend to blend in yeah. black and white and we feel I guess comfortable in that, but when you have a piece on that's a bit of a conversation starter. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's the beautiful thing about fashion. And mm. I, I don't think I really got that before. You know, I, I knew what looked good and I knew what looked classic and amazing on people that weren't me. Mm. Uh, but I never really understood what I felt comfortable in and my own sense of style. Yes. And it's just evolved so beautifully since I allowed 
myself to just look at those stores outside of the lens of go to the black section, go to the white section. I look at the whole thing now mm. and I'm just feeling for different things, mm. feeling for, for quality and recognising, you know, brands and shapes and yes. things. And I'm like, oh, this is really exciting and really and cool. everything has a past life and a story. Yeah. That's one of the most beautiful things. It's like someone's worn and loved this. Absolutely. Mm. And then they've gone, you know what, I can let someone else love this now. Mm. And that's what I have when I'm clearing out my closet as well. I'm, I'm looking at it going, oh, I love this dress because I'll rewear things until they're almost falling apart. Mm-hmm. I had a rotating four dresses that I would wear whenever I was hosting something or, you know, going to an awards night. And I had to look at them all recently and go, these have... It's time to go. Definitely seen. Like, they've got maybe four or five more wears in them before there's going to be issues. So I passed it on because I'm like, someone else is going to love this... And like, cherish it. ...silver sparkly evening dress. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I have to go to my... In her early 20s, Ray worked many modelling jobs as both a throughway to providing for her son, but also exploring her ambition and interest in the entertainment industry. Ray has been vocal about some of the more precarious jobs and situations she found herself in. I think as women, when we're in that seeker headspace, we can sometimes be too trusting. I asked her to talk about those times and also what advice she might have for young women as it relates to staying alert and staying safe. And that we are very trusting beings. I look back on some of the things that I did and just went, how did I get through that without anything terrible happening to me? Wow. Um, And when I say that, that's completely minimising the terrible things that did happen to me because, you know, they're not as bad as what could have happened. Mm. I... You bringing that up instantly brought up a a memory that I've had that I've held a lot of shame and guilt over that I should not be because it was not my fault. Mm. And it was early days of, you know, doing a bit of modelling. I never thought I could be a model because I was five foot three. I didn't understand that, you know, you could be a photographic model, lifestyle model, you know, all all of that sort of thing without Mm. having to be six foot tall. Uh, And obviously another element of performance for me. So something I really enjoyed doing. Um, But I I signed up with an agency, with an extras agency that was quite low bar to get in. Mm. Uh, you, You would see the ads in the back of papers and all that sort of thing. But, you know, how else did you find where to go when you know, I think this was like back in 2000. The classifieds, you know, wasn't it? Yeah. 2002 or something like that. Like yeah, there, there wasn't readily available information about agencies and who was reputable and who wasn't. Uh, and I remember being in a room with this photographer and he was asking me to take my bra off underneath my singlet top so that you could see my shape. And at the time I thought that this was a reasonable thing. Uh, then because I was like, well, yeah, obviously if you're modelling, people need to know what the shape of your breasts are. Mm. They need to know what they look like. Uh, and I was quite self-conscious about my breasts because I had I had breastfed for 14 months. Mm. I did not have, you know, 16-year-old, <laughs> you know, model breasts anymore. You know, they were women who was breastfed mm. breasts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were quite large as well. Uh, and... I did. I took my bra off and Mm. he took those photos of me in this flesh-coloured, mostly see-through singlet top that I was really uncomfortable in. 
And I don't know where those photos are. I don't know what happened to them. And I don't know how many other young women that photographer pushed beyond what they were comfortable with Mm. under the pretense that this is something that you should just accept if you want to have a go in this industry, that you need to be as easy to work with as possible. Mm. You know, being easy to work with is something that I still hold as a bit of a mantra, but it means something a lot different to me these days than it did back then. And back then it was saying yes to whatever comes across, you know, as an opportunity, you take every opportunity that comes your way. I, I think, you know, there's obviously many, many more examples. Yes, I of, bet there is. Of you know, photo shoots that ended up finishing at three o'clock in the morning, and in places that I was, you know, not really very familiar with. Public transport had shut down. I didn't know how to get home. Uh, you know, just many quite dangerous situations, you know, home studios with photographers, wow. uh, you know, people really not knowing where I was or what I was doing at those places as well. And I was pretty smart. I was pretty bright. I thought I knew what I was doing and I thought that I was being pretty safe because I'd, you know, checked references and all that sort of thing. But looking back, I was absolutely not safe mm. in, in any sense of the word. And I... I think it's a difficult thing to muster the strength to draw boundaries when you are young and vulnerable and yes. want opportunities. Um, however, I, I I would really like to be able to send a message that if you're in those situations, it's got nothing to do with you. It's it's you haven't put yourself there. You're you're not creating this dangerous situation. This is wholly the responsibility of the of the person with power here. And, you know, if, if you're ever feeling unsafe, it's something that you absolutely have the right to get yourself out of with any means possible and at any time. You don't owe them anything, mm. especially when you're starting off and you're building your portfolio and everything's for free and it's just an exchange for photos. You can get out of there and it won't ruin your reputation. You can get out of there. It's not going to blacklist you. You can leave at any time and it's not your fault. God, that's incredible advice because I think we don't even know at that age. Like we're still developing intuition. It's there but we haven't been in enough situations to know when the flag is really red. (laughs) Yeah. Or like a little bit pink. A little bit pink, a little bit like, oh, I might just keep my distance from this guy. I think that's an intuition that you do develop over the years. And like there's people now that I can just look at a tweet and go, no, no, (laughs) no, blocking you preemptively. But there's other people that disguise that a lot easier and Mm. they're harder to read and you don't quite know until you're in a situation but there are still warning signs and it's really only experience and age and wisdom that mm. you know, gives you those flags. Yes. You, you don't know what they look like before And just that. staying alert. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, things that you think are normal and then you look back on and you're like, dude, you were a creep. Yeah. And then you realise that you still have them on Facebook or something and you're like, it's been 10 years but can I just like – get rid of you from my life but also can I confront you about this Mm. can I say to you hey this was not okay have you I haven't Mm. I have I guess it's so much of like is that 
additive to yeah. your own personal growth or not? Because I have things in my life too where I'm like, is confronting someone, is that for me? Is that yeah. for you? What I, is this going to achieve? Situations like confrontational situations like that take so much of my energy yeah. that I could be devoting to other things that are beneficial for everyone. Yeah. So I could choose to confront this one guy or I could choose to support the network of young women coming up and letting them know that I am someone that they can come to if they have questions or concerns mm. about people and that I will be honest with you about my experiences. Yes. This is one of the questions I had for you. Yeah. Is as a, um, you know, a very valuable woman working in gaming and tech and STEM, like honestly, it's very inspiring. Thank you. Who did you look up to? Like, I mean, yeah. who was your it, – it's so phenomenal that you are a mentor to young women now and I'm so glad you called that out. DM Ray. <laughs> yeah, DM <laughs> If me. you, you know, have a question or need advice. Or, Absolutely. But, like, who did you go to when you were sort of coming through the ranks, I guess? Yeah, I think starting in, in games media was a bit of a, you know, new frontier for me because I came into, you know, working – as a journalist and, mm. and in video games and tech through presenting work that I did through acting work because uh, presenting was just easy acting. It was remembering lines without having to remember a character. <laughs> so I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to write everything that I said, so I was really happy about that. Um, but it was largely men and still is, but even more so. Uh, I can count on one hand the amount of women that were working in games media when I started and wow. now I can sit in a room with hundreds of women working across the whole games industry, even just in Australia. And the fact that all those women do come together on a regular basis is incredible, amazing and so inspiring and it makes my heart sing. Uh, but I did turn a lot to the other women that were already there um, and were already experiencing a lot of you know, negativity from existing in what is a male-dominated space. That being said, there wow. was... Wow, negativity in existing. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So you're, just you're, a sheer discomfort that you're there. Yeah, you're mm. in a place where you don't belong and there is a real pushback against that. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's very real and it's palpable and you feel it and it's vocalised to you on every platform. And every other woman in that space was feeling it as well. However, we were still living with this terribly patriarchal ideal that there were limited spaces for women in this industry. You know, that, you know, eventually all of the media outlets would have their token woman, but they'd never be predominantly women. And, you know, women would never you know, be on a 50-50 equal footing with the men in mm. the industry. So we all had to fight. And I didn't want to do that because I'm not comfortable with that at mm. all. I hate that. I, I want to... You draw from the wisdom of the other women there, but I want to be able to give them something back as well. I want this to be a reciprocal relationship and mm. I was really uncomfortable with it. So I think I kind of forced some friendships there for a while. You're going to like me. <laughs> I just kind of attached myself to the other women that were there and was like, hi, without being too creepy or in their space. And um, we ended up just kind of gravitating towards each other because there's a lot of events and mm. you're in a room with you know, 98 men and two women 
and you wow. just find each other. And you're not necessarily there talking about being a woman. No. You're just there talking about the game. Mm. But, you know, you're talking about it with them because I, I do remember the first time that I ever went to a games event representing that first media company that I worked for. And I was approached instantly by a journalist, a male journalist, who started just quizzing me about my knowledge. It was this real gatekeeper oh, moment. Oh, how boring. It was really boring. and But, of course, I was in this headspace where I had to prove myself. So I answered all the questions and played along. And I remember he pointed at me at the end and he went, cool, now I know you're real, and walked away. Gross. And that guy now, I've called him out constantly on it, is like one of my best friends in the industry. He's one of the best people because I think the whole space has grown and it's had to grow. The whole, not just games media, but the games industry. In a way, it's like, I think. But you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we had to. Yeah. We we had to show them the way. We had to forge a path. We had to provide role models. We had to open doors to let other women in. We had to change how everything worked because mm, that's that whole thing on toxic masculinity it's yeah. like it's not necessarily that they be- they believe what they're saying necessarily it's that they don't have any role models or examples of how else to act yeah yes yeah yeah so they're just doing what they've always done yeah and I came into the industry at the the peak of the fake geek girl so it was like if you're a girl and you like games or nerdy stuff, you're doing it for the attention of men. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like looking around the room going, come on, guys. Are you really holding yourself up? We don't like, want you that bad. <laughs> like, I can do better than you all and you know this. Like, <laughs> it was just this idea that there can't possibly exist. Mm. You know, a, a woman that likes the same things that I like and if she does, she's just doing it to – you know, be in my space or take something from me or, or mm. gain my attention in some way, completely ignoring that all, all of the women who paved the way decades ago in the games industry, who developed some of their favourite games. Yes. So ignoring all of that. Oh, yeah. I but blame knowing marketing. that, but ignoring that, you blame what? <laughs> I blame marketing. <laughs> there was a real shift in the late 80s, early 90s where games suddenly started being marketed just towards boys Mm. and girls were taken out of all of the advertising materials so it became a real boys activity and you see all the old ads now from the back of all the old gaming magazines and it's like a woman in a bikini draped over an arcade machine (laughs) so you know we kind of became accessories in a field that we pioneered accessories yeah yes (laughs) I wondered how you have navigated discrimination and perhaps the sexualization of women. Yeah. And then again, I guess for any women listening who might need some advice from you, I can imagine it's been quite tough emotionally at times. Yeah. So how have you, yeah, I guess that's kind of expansive in a way, but have you dealt with that? Yeah, I think I'm still dealing with that. Okay. I think I'll always deal with that in a way because I'm growing as a person and what I you know, value in myself and what I'm comfortable with in myself as well um, mm. because there was a big part of me that was I had to shut down. I, okay. I had to kind of 
remove any way of myself being seen as a sexual being in this space. Mm. I had to be one of the guys in order to fit in and survive. Wow. While at the same time navigating having, you know, a, a boss that wanted me to be overtly sexualized so that I would attract men to the publication. And I was grossly uncomfortable with that, but do I want to lose my job? Can't lose my job. Can't lose my job. Got a child to support. So you you do what you have to to get through, which is awful looking yeah. back. And it's survival. I think even more grossly, like I would like to think that I had a choice, but I didn't. If I didn't take that job, that was it. There were no other jobs. No one else was going to give me a chance. Mm. My way in was someone that had, you know, been a model, been, you know, considered conventionally attractive by you know, the mainstream and had knowledge of video games. But I was told to squash that knowledge, present myself as someone that knew very little and was, you know, a, a, the casual gamer, you know. Come to me with your questions, boys. I'll find out for you. I'll ask the developers. Wow. Um, yeah, so that, that, was, that was hard. So as a result of kind of rebelling from that entry into an industry that I wanted to be taken seriously in, I really wanted to be taken seriously in. Because did you feel like – so you had to take that job. Yeah. But at the same time, you know you're doing a disservice to yourself. Yep. There's nowhere to move in that. No, no. And my consolation is I'm writing these segments myself. I'm developing skills in this. I'm getting myself in front of all of these, you know, games publishers, developers, PR outlets. They're getting to know who I am. They know how I, what I'm like to work with. Mm. And it did lead to other things. It really did because that writing got me to write freelance for a whole bunch of publications. And then I ended up, you know, taking on a role as, as lifestyle tech and, you know, social media editor at, at, at Tech Life, which was mm. a fantastic opportunity. And I did video content for them and it all just kind of snowballed. But my start was in being a sexualized character in, in games media. And it was really gross to reconcile that. Um, but I, I, I've always prided myself on my intelligence. Yes. And I wanted to be respected for that. Mm. I wanted to be respected for the stories I was able to tell in the work that I did, not just for how I looked. Mm. I didn't want people to care about how I looked. So I went through a process of just, I, I would wear really high collared things and you know, baggy t-shirts and just really disguise me. Mm. a lot and your femininity and my like... femininity and any interests I had that weren't considered nerdy I wouldn't talk about because I had to prove that I belonged the whole time I had to squash that side of myself anything that wasn't you know fitting the stereotype of a geek that would make me readily accepted wow. I had to pretend didn't exist you know that first job even told me not to talk about my family not to talk about my son not to reveal on social media or to anyone that I was anyone know with, you're a mum. That I had a child because I needed to be attainable, aspirational. And I, I, I think that really hurt me. Mm. Um, and I'm still rebuilding and recovering from that. Mm. And that's, I think, you know, recently I went to an awards event in a dress that I never would have worn. <laughs> never, ever would have worn in a million years because I just looked at it and went, whoa, this is really low cut. Mm. Is anyone going to take me seriously? 
now, me, with 10 you. years' experience, you know, wow. been an editor of multiple sites, I've won awards, I've done all these things. Is anyone going to take me seriously if they can see my cleavage? So, yeah, I think <laughs> in terms of advice for this sort of thing, it's, it's it's difficult. It is. I, I think it. I think it really is difficult. It's circumstantial, and I think, again, it's you know if you've had to do things that you're not proud of, that you feel is at odds with how you want to be seen in the world, and who you want to be as a person, that's okay. It's all part of it. You mm. can get past it, and you'll learn from it. Um, mm. And yeah, it's yeah. Oh, doll. <laughs> you're just speaking my language, like yeah. You know, mine is. I don't think anywhere near as difficult as that and, you know, I I think really hard about this like I'm a um, thin, blonde, white woman. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way. Yep. <laughs> uh, that worked in fashion media. Yes. <laughs> All right, so I'm privileged. Yeah. Um, common privileged and when I think about – so that aside – and I want to acknowledge that because it's important to me that I do. I think about all the rooms I was in for all those years, even when we were working together, where I minimised myself and I covered myself. I would get up in the morning and think, okay, got a CEO directs meeting, so I won't wear that skirt. Yep. Or... Yeah, whatever it is. Got a meeting with this person or a coffee meeting. He's a man. I definitely won't wear that top. Yeah. And so the fact that we have to... Edit ourselves. Yes. Because what I, what I hope is that when I have that meeting with you that you focus on what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? And I wonder now, looking back, I think it held me back a bit, you yeah. know, in terms of... I mean, I do acknowledge that by traditional definitions, I was successful in that role, but I think I've got to, because I'm intelligent, I think I could have gotten there much quicker. But I was silent a lot of the time, especially at, in rooms and at tables that I felt I was being judged. Yeah. Um, yep. And I wasn't, I wasn't a, um, I don't think I was a token at all. No. Um, but I felt like one. <laughs> I always feel like a token. Mm. I always feel like I'm there because I tick a box. Mm -hmm. Every time I'm asked to do something, that's my instant assumption. I tick a box. I'm, I'm a woman. I'm an Indigenous woman. I, f you know, fit a certain mould. I, I, I feel like people turn to me when they want to fulfil a diversity quota for wow. one thing or another and I have to get past that being my first thought with every opportunity that's presented to me mm. and recognise that I have worked for and deserve the things that are coming my way. And that's, wow. that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Mm. I, sh I should not be feeling like that at this point but I, I think it's also because I'm constantly going into rooms, going into meetings, sitting on panels where I am the only person that can speak on behalf of some of the things that I can speak about and that's worrying yeah I'd love to have more of me in a room you know I'd love to thousands work at a, of you we need thousands <laughs> of you I'd like to work at a company where I'm not the only indigenous woman there 
Yeah. How the the we... only place that I have ever worked where I wasn't the only Indigenous woman there was like NITV, which is the you know National Indigenous <laughs> Television like Network. Like, is, yeah. It's kind of a requirement, mm. um, but that that's it. Every mm. other workplace is so overwhelmingly white, mm. and I I do love that I can provide you know the opportunity for people to be you know exposed to a culture they might not otherwise be or you know to be able to you know be that approachable person uh, that they can ask questions of but at the same time I'm I'm not always the best person to ask mm. and I don't always have the answers mm. and it's not just real life where I get asked as well it's online every day well, um, I could set up a consultancy business tomorrow and <laughs> I'd be totally I mean, fine. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. It's, it's sad that we need one, hey? Yeah. But, but, but I think learning that my value goes beyond the boxes I can tick mm. is something that I'm still in the process of. That's big. Mm. What um, – how do we – Oh, God, how do I even ask, like, <laughs> what do workplaces need to – why? <laughs> why are you the only why? Indigenous woman in a workplace? Like, what are, we, what are we getting wrong here? Like, what do we need to be doing? And, like, if there's anyone listening who is an employer, yeah. like, what is your advice for people running businesses? Like, how have we gotten here? I think – Making people aware that your business is educated mm. on, you know, the cultural sensitivities and, and, and needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or, you know, people from any other, you know, yeah. underrepresented, you know, culture or, or gender or, you know, sexual orientation or any of those things. Yeah. I think making that really obvious and clear, I think advertising it and being proud of it and saying, you know, this is a workplace that knows what to do in these situations, knows how to support that you're going to be supported. Yeah. That you're going to be supported, that your voice is going to be heard and valued, that you're not going to be pushed into, you know, being the token representation, you know, mm. in, in every instance, that you know, you're there to do your job. You're not there to be the the cultural advisor for your entire company. Uh, that they already have that education and that they've got people that they can turn to and, and, and utilise for that and that they're using that information to make it a safe and nurturing workplace for you. Mm. I think that that's what you want to hear. You, you want to look on the website and go, oh, awesome, they get it. Have they, you ever heard or read that? No, no. except for at SBS. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, but I think by definition they have to, but mm. I no. Um because I think that this is a space where a lot of people are learning still. Mm. And that's okay. I think Yes. I think the thing that businesses need to understand that it's okay to look around and recognise that there's a diversity issue within your company. Mm. But also that it's okay to reach out and say, I need help with this. Yep. That there are organisations that exist solely to help with that. Mm. And they can help get you up and running in a way that will attract employees to your company. You know, this is something that we come across, you know, even with just attracting women to game developers. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's a huge issue. 
but having it an obvious thing that the company cares about is going to make you way more likely to apply. Mm, just a better place to work. Yeah, really. better place to work. And I think hiring practices as well, like looking at the value that diverse teams can bring mm. is so important, you know, it's, and it's not about, you know, people not getting in on merit. That's just such a gross ideal. It is. It's you know, when you've got a series of life experiences within your team, you're much better equipped to be able to serve your audience, your customer, you know, what, whatever it is that you're doing. Mm. You can understand them better and you can understand their needs and you can create a better end product. Amazing advice as per. Cute. <laughs> um, I would like to talk about Jess. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> and the reason I want to talk about him is... Um, you know, I'm in a very beautiful marriage also yeah. and I have a very supportive man behind me. You know, there's that saying behind every good man is a good woman. No. Times are a-changing. <laughs> <laughs> behind an every good woman is a man that knows how to do his own washing. <laughs> yes, and mine too. <laughs> Honestly, yesterday I was working from home and Tony was like we'd been away. I did it my Listener event in Brisbane, actually, yes. we hadn't been away. Won't minimise that either. Amazing listener event in Brisbane. And so we'd had a lot of washing and we hadn't been home on the weekend. And he was like, okay, so there's three loads <laughs> and what you need to do is I've put the whites in, you take them out. If it's not raining, you can put them on the line downstairs. If it is <laughs> raining, you can get the rack out of the stairwell. And I was looking at him and I was like, so, oh. And he was like, don't worry. I was like, Okay. <laughs> Mate, I'm busy. <laughs> it's like, I just, I just, do I have to think about this but right he loved, now? he loves to do it. <laughs> I maintain. <laughs> but this is the thing is like also working for myself now, it's like I'm not going to turn into a domestic goddess because <laughs> I'm home more. I'm still Alison. Yeah. I'm still working yeah. all the time. And, yeah, I'm trying though. And I would say that's the flip side for us is I'm trying to be more present domestically. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> like I'm trying to give a fuck about it is yeah. basically where I am. But Jess, yes, um, I'd love to talk about him. Yeah. You proposed to him. I did. And I mean, you know, I think you're awesome anyway. Oh. But that day I was like, you just like triple awesome <laughs> because, you know, challenging those gender roles in yeah. relationships. I mean, that is so fantastic. I want to know, did you always know you were going to propose to him or was there a sort of catalyst there or like, yes, tell me. I don't think I always knew I was going to propose to him. I think we were, we were best friends before we started dating. Oh, wow. Um, we, were, we were friends and quickly became very, very close. Actually, when I was going through a breakup okay. of a previous very long-term relationship, you know, with, with someone I had built a whole life with. Mm. We had a mortgage, we had a business, every, wow. everything. And that all came crumbling to a halt. <laughs> is, a, is a phrase I have just invented. <laughs> <laughs> and he was an absolute rock for me at that period of time with what I detected as absolutely no ulterior motive whatsoever. You know how... Like, I, I'm fully conscious of you know, telling this story and there'd be people hearing it going, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, he was right. waiting to swoop in, but it really wasn't 
like, like that. that at all. I would have felt it if it was and I would have been repulsed by it, mm. honestly, because I just needed a friend at that mm. period of time. Um, and you are so vulnerable then. I was it's... incredibly vulnerable. I could never respect someone that Prayed did at that, that time, yeah. At all. Um, but we, we ended up becoming best friends and we are best friends for about you know, a year and a bit, something. And it was actually Seth, my son, he decided that we should date. Oh, did he now? <laughs> and he said to me, he, he said, Mum, I've... Because Jess's nickname is Jigsy. And there's a long story with that. I don't even understand. <laughs> and he said, no, I, I really think that you should make him your boyfriend. He was 11 by this stage. What and a I said, heaven angel. Seth, I'm, I'm really not sure about that. Like I was having this very mature conversation <laughs> with an 11-year-old about you know, the risks of you know, taking a, a, a step in that kind of direction with someone that you relied on for friendship support and not wanting to ever lose that yes. or change that or have that go away in your life. You know, he was so important to me. I didn't want to do anything to mess that up. But, of course, kids are very intuitive. And the whole reason that he had asked that is I'd already started developing feelings for, for Jess. And I think he could sense that. Mm. Seth, that is. Not Jess. Not Jess. He had no idea. Oh, he idea. had no idea. He had no idea that I was starting to develop feelings for him. Um, and then, yeah, whole thing. <laughs> there, was, there was a whole thing where I ended up catching, uh, it took me 42 hours to fly back from Peru because I was in love with Jess and I needed to tell him to his face. Oh my God, here's my grand story. And I cut this trip, you know, trekking on Machu Picchu and all this sort of stuff short because I couldn't spare you know, another, another second across the other side of the world and I'm tossing up in this airport where I was delayed for eight hours with no battery on any of my devices or anything, you know, writing in this journal that I had that I still have and I go back wow. and read sometimes, you know, debating whether to go home and shower first <laughs> <laughs> or whether to just like sneak into his place and just confess my love to him. Um, and I did, and it all worked out. Did you shower or went I to his not. house? I didn't shower. <laughs> I didn't shower. I just went over there and I thought, well, this is another test, isn't it? Like, you know, if he... Do you love me now? <laughs> do you love me? 42 hours traveling straight, delirious, stinky. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you know? How do beautiful. you accept me at my most vulnerable, at my least attractive, you know, just me as I am? Um, and he did. And yeah, he loved me back. And it was lovely. This but is like the fourth time I'm like <laughs> keeping the old tears Aww. back. <laughs> um, but it was coming up to our third anniversary of being together and we were very, very happy and mm. everything was just continuing to get better and better. We'd supported each other through some incredibly tough times. Uh, you know, we, we both have issues with our mental health. Mm -hmm. I have clinical depression uh, that I, I deal with. That. Yeah, with medication and, and therapy. Uh, and he has chronic anxiety that was quite debilitating uh, at one stage to the point where he couldn't leave the house. So there was a period of time of about three months where he was housebound because wow. he could not leave the house. Uh, so we've both dealt with those things. Luckily, it's worked out that... Opposing times. They've been really bad at different times. So we've been able to be there to support each other. And there was just this kind of feeling of we've been through so much together. Like, I never want to be without this man in my life. Mm. Ever, ever, ever. Mm. 
you know, that being said, we'd always kind of had a chat about, you know, if we got married, it would be on a kind of as long as our love shall last kind of deal. I never wanted us to get to a point where we couldn't stand the side of each other, but we were staying together because that's what you had to do. Yeah. Because that's the rules. You know, you've made this promise and that's it. You stick by it and making each other miserable. Mm. Not, not keen, not interested. But we just support each other so well and we grow together so beautifully that I just went, I've booked this really fancy dinner for our anniversary. It was beautiful. I'm going to propose. And from memory, the dinner was on a Monday night or something. And I decided on the Friday that I was going to propose. Well, I remember the ring. Because <laughs> he loves Batman. And well, I, I was going to say, buddy, I was going to say it was a Superman ring. So it was a Batman, Batman ring. I love Wonder Woman. He loves Batman. Went up to the comic store and, and bought this Batman ring and panicked. And I spent the next few days just in this sheer sweat. What if something happens to the ring? It was a $40, like, silver Batman ring. Like, like I, it's not a one-carat diamond. I, I could not imagine the kind of stress that you know, people yes. go through when they buy a, a big, you know, engagement ring that's like a house deposit. I, I don't know how they deal with that amount of pressure. Um, and, yeah, I proposed. Uh, but I think there was a part of that that I really loved. I I loved the idea of bucking that trend in a way, mm. but also I loved the idea of the power that that gave me mm. in the in the relationship. But it was also a little bit symbolic of how we work together as well, um, because he's you know never been someone that's needed to tell me what to do. He doesn't, mm. you know, he doesn't. Just self assured. He's, he's there to support yeah. me in whatever my decisions are, and I'm there to support him in what his decisions are. He's not there to dictate what I say, do, mm. where, go, Equals. who I see. We're totally equal. Mm. Um, so I think the symbolism of that was really important to me. Mm. Um, also, I hate the idea of public proposals. I cannot stand I, the thought of someone proposing to me in some big orchestrated event with a flash mob and a helicopter <laughs> or a drone or something filming it and it ends up on YouTube is like worst nightmare fuel for me cannot handle that so it was also a way of me avoiding that ever happening <laughs> like don't get any ideas I'm gonna I'm gonna do this very quiet you know very subtle proposal in this corner of this very dark beautiful restaurant where we're having this incredible meal and that's, mm, it. And that's, that's what we did I had food poisoning oh, when no. Tony proposed I actually haven't told this story but he was just so determined to propose on the 1st of January because it was all a, like symbolic of a, like a new year started together yeah. and, you know, the rest of our lives. Um, and I think he just had his plan so firm and, it, you know, because I think he had had the ring for about a year. Oh. <sighs> See, I share so Apparently many in like a now. jacket pocket. With me in the cupboard. Like, whenever I hear about a proposal and it's a, you know, traditional kind of male-female mm. situation and the man's proposed and all that sort of stuff, I'm just like, how stressed are you? You know, <laughs> most people go up to, you know, the woman with the ring on her finger and they're like, oh, my God, show it to me. How was it? Tell me. I go straight to the man and I'm like, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was that hard? Because I understand it's that. It's like a massive... Yeah. Yeah, and he just said, because I was like, so were you, like, thinking about it? <laughs> like, 
and he said like this whole time (laughs) he didn't well that's what I love about my rings is they're actually um they're from a beautiful jeweler in Sydney called Melissa Harris but they're more or less they're not expensive they're just but they're all unique that's so they're all my own wedding band I found for myself in a vintage store in Tassie just because I love rubies and I found oh, this. It's my birthday. Yeah, from the from the 20s, mm. so $80. Yeah. That's the thing is it's <laughs> not about how much it's worth or no. what it looks like. It's It really is a symbol of your love. And But no, I'll never forget because he was like, we're going out for dinner. We're in Bali. And I was like, honey, I'm real sick. Like, I mean, I'm, <laughs> like, I'm not eating. Yeah. Um, but I, he was just so nervous and it was so like he had to do it on that day. So I bloody went. <laughs> He drank like a whole bottle of champagne to himself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I don't drink now, um, which has just been a kind of evolving thing with mm, me. It wasn't I'm like sober a, curious, I'll tell you that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just something I just stopped, started drinking less and less until I got to a I don't really see the point stage. Mm, it's and interesting. And now it's just yeah. easier to say that I don't yeah. rather than no thanks constantly. Yeah. Um, but I did drink then <laughs> and it was one of those degustation menus where you have the matching wines and I think it was like 15 courses or something ridiculous and I was seven matching wines in <laughs> before I thought to myself, if I don't do this now, I'm, I'm going to be slurring my way through. Like I'm not, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like I, I won't be able to say anything profound or memorable. <laughs> or <laughs> so I love you. <laughs> So I ended up turning to him and saying, all right, so I'll, I'll do this before I get too drunk. <laughs> That's the main memory that he has. <laughs> Me doing this thing where I thought I was saying it in my head, but it was really, really out loud. loud. <laughs> So, of course, that's the story that gets told about me proposing, going, oh. all right, like hyping myself up for it. Amazing. Well, I put the ring on then went to vomit. So. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, um, now, I have adored talking to you and I have at least 10 other questions that I'm not oh, going to get to, which is such a shame, but I kind of knew we'd do this. Part two. In a lot of ways. I reckon I might call you on that. Um, but I do have a final question. Yeah. Offline exists as an exploration of self. <gasps> this, one, this one. I've been waiting for this one. Uh, who are we without the labels that we put on ourselves but also society puts on us? And, you know, you were talking about ticking those boxes before for a lot of people. You know, that Indigenous woman, female gamer, tech journalist – there's so much there that you're called, actually. Yeah. And so when you're sitting in true self, mm. and I like to think of this as a couple of things, like how do you identify with that or who are you? Because some people have gone to places Yeah. when they're in their true self and some people, I certainly went to sort of like my character. Yeah. You know, so yeah, um, yeah who are you? I think I am still that little girl that wants to experience as many things as she can experience in her life Mm. so that she can help as many people as she possibly can. Mm. I really, I really do believe that. I I think that's, that's still who I am. Um, But I think on top of that, I'm also someone that really wants to move past the struggle. Yeah. That still occurs that I even sometimes subconsciously seek. Wow. And moving from that 
mindset of survival into a mindset of thriving. And abundance. Yeah. And being comfortable with that. Mm. Being comfortable with sitting in what I've achieved and what I've earned and what I've worked for and letting go of any kind of guilt that I have of possessing things Mm. that I didn't previously. Be they materialistic, friends, career, any of that. You are speaking to my soul. (laughs) I'm crying again. (laughs) Well, thank you for being on my podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. Honestly, (laughs) I have so many questions that are now going to like burn a hole in my phone. So many more stories. I know. I think we're we're doing this again. (laughs) Yeah, we have to. (laughs) This is therapy for me now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.